asking my parents why why were people allowed to have secret societies like why were these things allowed to even exist like an organized they're like what do you mean i was like i don't know that's that's not legit to me (laughs) what they say they said well what else you're gonna well you know you consider the other extreme it means people can't assemble we have a right to peacefully assemble right so yeah yeah no i mean it's true i mean i guess one of the questions is also can capitalism function without uh, these kind of secret societies, this right to assemble, these hierarchies. I mean, we're talking about like, uh, we were talking earlier, right, about this Pareto dynamic, right? I mean, the airline. I mean, I sometimes think airlines are a great example of like the way our society works, right? I mean, you get all these perks if you can pay your way into first class. And if you can pay more money, you can go to the secret lounge. If you pay more money, you can go to the other secret lounge. And if you can't pay, you just have to pay these fees, right? You're you're essentially free property, right, to be um, taken advantage of. Well, the cost plus model also allows them to market to more types of customers, right, and and make money in the margins. But you're right; it's also still Pareto principle, and they can figure out exactly how much, you know, how many cokes to keep, and how many seats they need to sell for, you know, whatever amount to make their their numbers. And it's piracy, right? I mean, so many of our police departments are set up on this model too, right? Like, police have to uh, issue a certain number of tickets, right? Police need to make a certain number of arrests, charge a certain number of fines. And who do they charge them to, right? Primarily, they charge them to the people who are actually most visible, the ones that are on the streets, the ones that are driving, the ones that have to take public transport, the ones who can't pay for private security, private gates, um, enclosed spaces to protect themselves. I mean, I agree. Mm. So, I mean, you have these, like, jurisdictions, right, where the laws are not the same as the laws that apply in the rest of the, the world, right? I mean, and I guess that's why somebody like Trump would be like, you know, people like me, we don't pay taxes, right? That's just not the kind of thing that we do. Or, like, if you're a royal in Britain, do you pay taxes? I mean, you're like, that's what the other people do. Yeah, I mean, I saw Robin Hood, right? We all saw Robin Hood growing up. The sheriff of Nottingham doesn't pay taxes. He taxes your ass. That's how it works. Mm. If you're the sheriff, why would you pay taxes? But in that way, are we simply going back to a more feudal order? I mean, yes. <laughs> you're like, we never left. Yeah, but I mean, we've been, but, we, we've been pre- making a pretty dramatic turn towards this new feudal order since the 80s, though, right? I'd argue, I'd argue almost our entire life we've been pretty deep into this new feudal system, right? The development of it. I think now people have finally woken up and figured out what was going on. You know, I think for nearly... Well, so you think some of us were just delusional. We didn't see it coming. We we were thinking that Obama was a great sign of a new democratization. Keep going. <laughs> you know, that like Obama meant more and more of us were being included into the system. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people believe that. I mean, people still get shocked. I told my friend the other day he came over. He didn't... There were two stats he didn't know. One in particular was he didn't realize the black community lost 50% of its wealth under Obama. It's actually more than 50% of its wealth. It's like 53% while Obama was in office. For some reason, people don't realize this. They don't seem to care. and But now their pocketbooks are hurting and they want some sort of you know restitution. Where do they turn? Where do they turn? I mean, it looks like they're turning back to Obama, funny enough. But we'll see how that plays out for them, right? I mean... Do you think Biden represents something different than Obama? I guess that's another question that, we, that we've been meaning to get around to. What type of candidate is Biden? So supposedly since 1967, um, in 1967, the black income was 55% of the white income. In 2011, the median black household income was 59% of the white household income. So 
in that long period from 1967, right, to 2011, which we often think of as, you know, the height of the civil rights movement, I mean, generously 4% increase in income relatively to whites in this country, right? I mean, this question of what actually happened in the decades after civil rights is very murky. I, I mean, I think I'm more charitable to Obama than you are. My dad always says what he call it, he was doing his time on the cross. Actually, the, the first black chair of uh, Princeton <laughs> is actually a, a black medievalist, one of the guys that was brought in during the 70s. And, you know, you can see him with his gold chain and his afro. But he said he was going to do something subversive, which was study, you know, uh, late medieval England. He was like, everybody was going to Mississippi, and I was like, I'm going to do this other thing. People thought I was crazy. People thought I was a sellout. But basically... I saw him a few years ago, and he was like, that's what I had to do to become the first chair of the Princeton History Department, right? I mean, a department that was built for the preservation of the Anglo-Saxon tradition. And so he, told, he, he successfully got another black man to be a uh, chair after him. And I was asking him about it, and he was like, yeah, he has to do his time on the cross. And I've always thought it was interesting to me that both my dad and this man used that metaphor, right? To be the first meant for them that you were basically doing your time on the cross, right? You're just hanging up there, paying your dues, right? And that's why my dad, when I asked my dad sometimes, like, do you think Obama needed to do more? And he's like, no, he did his time, right? I mean, he was hanging up there. there what does that even over but, now? I mean, I'm just going to, you know, all respect to your dad, but what the fuck does that even mean, though? I mean, it sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me. Doing his time, what is, what, whose time? I'm supposed to care about Obama as a person? He's a public servant. The president's a public servant. Now you're sounding like Trump. See, this is the problem I have with Obama supporters. It's like he, 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 looking out for number one. The Obama's job that he elected to do himself, no one made him do this, was to be the president of the country, right? So any argument that he did something for he or him, I think is a bad faith argument, right? And that's and that's why- I'm trying to make an argument that he did it for him, right? I think what I'm trying to say is well, that- Well, you said he right? did his time. What do you mean his time? The United States has a fundamental, I think, and this is a question I guess we could debate, but I think in some ways this is why Ta-Nehisi Coates is the intellectual of the Obama era, right? The United States has kind of an original sin. And the original sin of the United States is the question of slavery and race. And it has been, I think, still up to grabs whether or not, I mean, well, there's also the genocidal extermination of the indigenous people. That's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I guess combined, I think that's not even a sin that we're willing to address. Yet. So I think in some ways, the genocidal extermination of the indigenous people and the lands question are questions that still remain to be resolved. I agree. But within the settler question, right, the question of race continues to be a massive problem for the United States project. I mean, I think it's why we have those crazy statements by that lady, who I need to look up her name, the one under, the one under Trump who just said, you know, uh, the Chinese are the first non-Caucasian um, peer competitor, right? Hey, Alton, are you still with me? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The Chinese are the first non-Caucasian peer competitor. And so, like, I think it's a race, you know, the question of whether or not an American who is non-white can be a full citizen is still a question that needs to be tested, right? And I think that is the question that Obama, that the election of Obama by those who chose Obama were testing, right? Could a non-white person be president of the United States? Can a non-white person actually be 100% American? But what does that have to do with and what you were saying before? So you're saying that he could be president, but also not act as a president? Like it's see, once again, that's a bad faith argument. It just doesn't make any sense. It still doesn't excuse him for his inaction once he was in office. 
what I'm trying to say is I think his election was itself an action. And then I think the question, the thing that I think tied him up was actually this dual play, right? What does it mean to have a black American man be president? And I guess we can debate whether or not you think he's black American, but non-white man be president. Could he end the war on terror? Mm. I mean, his name, middle name is Hussein. Um, could he tell us that we were going to accommodate the Chinese into the world system? Would that in and of itself... He, he got in trouble when he removed uh, Churchill's bus from the Oval Office. And Churchill's a genocider. But the question of whether or not a non-white man could question the Anglo-Saxon heritage of this country was remained to be unresolved. And he seemed that he couldn't even reform his own domestic security service. He wasn't even able to replace these white supremacists that he had running the military and security establishment. I mean, hell, Joe Biden's an interesting character, right? Because Joe Biden, the man he had to pick as his vice president, is the one who called him clean and articulate. So basically, he picked the safest racist that he could find. All right. Racist is probably too harsh a term. I don't believe that Joe Biden is a racist. The safest segregationist that he could find. There we go. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't think Joe's racist either. No, I think Joe's not racist. I think it's like how Kanye was wrong when he said uh, George W. Bush is a racist. You're like, George W. Bush was a lot of things, but he wasn't racist. But you might be racist, Kanye. I don't know. I mean, I've canceled Kanye, but I hear that you're still listening to the boy. But he put I mean, out a he, whole look, other Kanye question. put out a nice track the other day. I was thinking about opening up this episode by playing it, to be honest. But we'll get to that. I just don't know if I can handle the cons. I mean, you know, he's on. He's still on his Jesus talk. But, you know, it was all right. It wasn't bad. Though he did get that Gap contract. Oh, yeah. Him and the Gap going, to, going doing big things, let me tell you. <laughs> big things, dude. I feel like all the Kardashian West are selling out now. They're all trying to cash in. You can't blame them. Get that suburban money. A little 300 mil here, a little 300 mil there. Take it. Why not? Uh, I guess not, especially since you don't know what that Instagram following is actually really worth. I guess you got to turn it into cold, hard cash sometimes. But, yeah, I mean, I think the big problem for, for, for Obama, and I think it's a question, I think, for any... For African Americans who are not willing to play the total conservative card... And, and not willing to simply acknowledge kind of what, I guess, to be uncharitable, might be called white supremacy's valid validity. Which I think is why that non-Caucasian peer competitor thing really stuck out to me. Because I'm like, oh, this is a black woman who really clearly believes in white supremacy, right? She believes that her job is the global maintenance of white supremacy. I think that's the contradiction that people like Obama found themselves in, right? What does it mean to be not white, but to be head of a white supremacist empire? And how much can you move the needle? And that's why my conservative friend, he came up to me and he was like, you know, what did he tell me? He was like, the thing I don't like about uh, Obama is that he says, I forgot he had a really funny phrase, but he was like, Obama is shaking the system constantly, right? Uh, And he thought that Obama was trying to change the direction of the ship. But now he's ended up in the Trump administration, which is kind of funny to me because I'm like, I think Trump is trying to shake the ship. I mean, I didn't know the ship could shake this much, but maybe... I, I didn't find Obama to be very disruptive at all, to be honest. I mean, he had... I didn't think Obama was very disruptive at all either. So I was surprised by this guy who now works for National Security for Trump's opinion that Obama was incredibly disruptive. And so I was still kind of like, what was the disruption? And I think what's hard for you and me to understand is that the mere presence of Obama was disruptive, right? Like, have you seen Trump stand there with the Joint Chiefs of Staff? And like, all these dudes are white. How can the American military, which is disproportionately black and Hispanic, not seem to be able to find any senior 
officers of color. We haven't seen to seen any since like George W. Bush. But I, I, I think the officer corps is disproportionately white and family based too. So there's that. Mm. Right? Yeah, what does that tell us, right? I mean, I think the people who think that they own this country, right? Actually, for a large share of them, right, see it as a white man's country. And I think it was interesting because, like, you know, the way that people like Jordan Peele have dealt with this question in movies like Get Out, where there's this idea that, you know, they were all comfortable with Obama. And true, I mean, he was the same. Like, I don't know if this is everybody, anybody's ever told this to you, but when I first got to Columbia, uh, this guy in my hall came up to me and was like, you're the most non-threatening person I've ever met. But a lot of us who are not, like, white have had to perform non-threateningness, right, in public spaces. And I think Obama did it too, right? I mean, I recognize it. Um, my other friend was like, at Princeton was like, you know, Alden, every time the police stop you, you suddenly adopt a British accent. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, like, I mean, a lot of us have, I think that, I think those are some of the traps that you find a black president in, right? That, uh, how did you get there, right? You had to get there by making a lot of people feel unthreatened. And I, and I found it to be incredibly frustrating, too. I mean, why couldn't he say, after Dylan Roof killed all those people in that church in Charleston, why couldn't he simply say, like, look, America is filled with armed white nationalists who pose a greater danger to our country than um, the war on terror as currently described will ever will, right? He couldn't. He didn't feel like he could. So he... And maybe you're right, this is a cop-out, but he retreated into song, right? He had to retreat in that moment to say what he couldn't say to Amazing Grace. I mean, I, you know, I have a particular perspective on this. Uh, I think, one, he was a little hamstrung, and there wasn't so much he could have done except for probably pass a few executive orders that could have or could not have been obeyed. I think that's the other issue, right, of governance. Like, what happens if he does it as a black president, if you think the issue is that bad, and then they just don't listen to you? Um, this might be a failure of imagination on the Democratic side in general, but often it seems that we perform actions. It's like an abusive relationship we have with our with the GOP, right? We perform actions in fear that they're going to like do something radical or violent if if we don't do these actions. And I, I don't know if I accept that. I don't know if that's a rational way to, to proceed, especially in politics. But that does seem to... Is that what you're saying? That that's part of it? Yeah, I think in some ways, right, he... And I think you're right. This is perhaps, I think, the thing that we find all find very frustrating is that he came from a long chain of Democrats, right? Which is the other heritage, which is not, I think, about being black, particularly. I mean, he came out of the DLC, the Democratic Leadership uh, Council, in the tradition of, like, the Hillary Clintons and Bill Clintons and this idea of triangulation, which is, I think you're right, is meant in many ways, like, moving a half ball halfway down the field to where the Republicans want the ball to be. And then being like, oh, let's negotiate over the other half of the field. And you're kind of like, uh, this is not a way to uh, make any great victories. Yeah, and it stands to question what's the real central division between the parties. But that might have to be for another another uh, episode. But we should definitely talk about that. Like, how do we get there to the point to where we even find that acceptable? What What are we willing to negotiate about? Like, what are the real core differences? I think, you know, I think the legacy of what was allowable has been very interesting. And I mean, I think some of it, and we can talk about this later, is about the demonization of Marxism, the demonization of the labor movement, um, the kind of idea that socialist politics is illegitimate, right? And once you take that off the table, I guess you are halfway down. You're already starting at the, you know, halfway down the, the court. 
Yeah, and I think that's why, to bring it full circle, why, why once again, Biden is the candidate. I mean, you know I was a big Sanders guy. That's my, that's my guy. Um, but, as I like to point out to people, I'm, I'm moving my mouse on this Vice President Joe Biden mouse pad that I've had for, like, ever. <laughs> like, 12 years. So, you know, I like Biden. Um, and I think he provides this middle road for people that they find very acceptable. Well, Biden, I think, provides this idea of safety, right? Like, I think if you think that there have been too many disturbances, if you think it's been a, maybe you even believe in Trump, right? But you think he's unlucky. You know, you're like, oh, the COVID thing happened. Uh, I don't know. I've been feeling a little nervous. Maybe you, you want a safe pair of hands, right? You want someone else that you could fall in love with. Healing hands, like that one uh, article healing said hands. about him. He said Joe has healing hands. He can. Yeah, Joe's a healer. Jay's a, Joe's a mourner. I think it was John. I mean, that's the other. Yeah, question. John Stewart. He's trying to right. He's trying to push that whole thing that Joe's a mourner. Yeah, and, yeah. Joe is like a healer. And then there've been all these articles saying that Joe is about mourning, right? This idea that there's some kind of sadness in America that maybe the dream wasn't what we thought it was. I guess what? what? But I guess that's shit. What dream? I guess we've been asking that since the raising of the sun, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's the Thomas Jefferson thing where, you know, you feel a little bit bad about the fact that you had to have all these slaves, but you're like, who else was going to carry me as a baby up these marble steps? Or who else was going to power, you know, the conquest of the West, the Midwest, right? The expansion of the country, the manifest destiny. And I guess that's my main problem with this, you know, the Biden theory of the case at the end of the day. I think it's going to be insufficient. I think, especially black Americans, they need a new dream. We found that that old dream, even if you played it out all the way, was frankly insufficient, right? It, it didn't solve our problems. We've, for the most part, been stagnant or gone backwards. Some of us have done all right, but in aggregate... Which I think is another problem with the Obama thing. So I think if you want to talk about the other problem with the Obama thing, is that for a few African Americans, right? I mean, Max... And this is very generous, 20%, but maybe less, maybe 10%. It's been going gangbusters out here, you know what I mean? They're like, they got contracts on MSNBC. They've been able to move in circles they never thought they would be able to move in. They're making movies. They got Netflix deals. They're living like Dave Chappelle. But for the vast majority of African Americans, I mean, the idea that we haven't made any progress while some people have gone gangbusters means that actually for a lot of African-Americans, the situation has gotten much worse. Wait, you mean I can't live vicariously through Beyonce and Jay-Z? That's, that doesn't make my life better? No? I mean, maybe it makes your mental life better, right? It's paying psychic wages, to use the Du Boisian phrase. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I mean, but, you know. But it just means that some people must be doing real bad. Correct. And I think maybe that was the other problem with, with Barack, right? Is that, I mean, you know. He's from a prep school in Hawaii, and he's most of his black friends he's made while he's been on the way up. <laughs> and maybe when he looks around, he's like, oh, you're a governor at the Federal Reserve. My boy, Deval Patrick, is some kind of private equity guru. And he's like, he asked Deval, he's like, Deval, how have you been doing? Deval's like, I don't know. I made like $500 million last year, so I'm doing great straight. I mean, honestly, that was my number one thing that I always found suspect about Obama initially is that he didn't have any uh, black friends from when he was younger. That's like, to me, like, is he, are you really black then? So, like, you don't know any black, like, you don't have this one, no black friend that can come testify for you? That's strange, man. Like, I don't. I guess he did acquire most of his black friends, um, it seems, in the after college period. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little strange. I mean, that's all. I mean, 
Like, and that's what I tell people when I when I say Obama's not black. You know, you've heard me make the statement before. And, you know, obviously Obama is black. I mean, come on, guys. That's not the real point. My point is that he's not a, really a full member of the African-American community, right? Yeah. Well, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't watch that show Black AF, right? I mean, I, you didn't. I, tr- I, tr- I don't know if you've ever watched Black. AF. I tr- I tried to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll admit it's not the greatest show I've ever seen, but I think one of the the things it does raise well is this question exactly that you're talking about about Obama, right? Which is like, for many of us, I don't know if you feel this way, but for many of us, on the come up, right, it's been hard. It's lonely. Like you get there. Sure, they let you get into Goldman Sachs, right? And then you find out, I mean, if you do survive, which is, I mean, it's own grind of racism. I mean, who knows what kind of person you have to be to survive as a black guy to make it to partner at Goldman Sachs. But by the time you do, right, do you have any black friends anymore? Can you still talk to them? Can they do the things you do? I mean, the other day you were like, I don't know, you were with the boys racing in a Bugatti. And like, did your friends from home, can they do the same things? And do you gradually stop talking to them, right? I mean, there's an issue with a cookout. Well, well, there's also the question of whether or not those two things should mean the same thing. Just because you have, like, so you think class is something that should be reinforced. And once you hit a certain wealth level that you don't have any commonality with people, I don't think that's true. Well, once again, I think this is a thing where you saying in New Orleans, I think in some ways mitigates against some of these things, right? Because I think the culture in New Orleans is strong enough that there is some cross-class communication. But I think for a lot of people, people who, especially people who live in this kind of like, and, first time I saw and our neighborhoods, like, our neighborhoods are very integrated here too in terms mixed. of yeah, 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 in terms of wealth, very much in terms of wealth. Well, one of the first times I saw it was in Atlanta, right, where you're like, wait a minute, all these subdivisions are one mono race and mono income, like you have to be able to at least present that you're hitting this micro targeted uh, consumption pattern. And like, so you're like, wait a minute, you guys don't want to hang out with people of different races and you don't want to hang out with people of different incomes? This seems a little, a little lonely out here. I mean, that's, that's uh, suburban sprawl. That's like the definition of it, right? If you're going to build all these little subdivisions, they're all going to be about the same price, right? That people that probably work at pretty similar places because there's not, you know, there's that whole thing going on too. And yeah, it's, I mean, just another way of clustering and social ordering. I mean, that happens as well in the New York area. I mean, I've, I remember being just so startled when I went to the Northeast, just like these large ethnic, you know, uh, neighborhoods that... Yeah, I mean, I think New York, New Jersey, not that I mean, we did all about this. Not that we didn't have them here. We really we had two in New Orleans historically. We have the Vietnamese community that lives in the East that's pretty big, right? Um, and they're, frankly, almost like a different... They're kind of just, they're they're technically in New Orleans, but they're so far out, right? They're not even connected to the rest of the city. And then uh, we used to have the largest Honduran population outside of the capital uh, Mm. here in New Orleans, but I don't think that's true anymore. That's Katrina. And they had a pretty big contiguous neighborhood as well. But aside from that, it's not really a thing here. Yeah, I think it's, but I think in that way, Obama is actually not that anomalous from from a large part of American culture. And, And I think, disappointingly, perhaps a large part of African-American society, right? You move up, you move out. Oh, certainly. You just stop talking to your poor relations. Very much so. I think uh, that's one of those realizations that I had when I went to college. And I met a lot of other African-Americans that, you know, were a little more bougie, you know, middle class, upper middle class. And you, you find that they didn't have as many, maybe as many black friends, that they didn't live in the same communities. Like, maybe New Orleans is a little different. And I think that's also a price that maybe this... Because, I mean, the other thing Obama is, is, what do you call it? 
he's a he's a guy who was made him and his wife, right? Him and Michelle, as much as we love Michelle, are people who who were made by the educational system, right? I mean, they were they are people who see themselves and were seen as exceptional students. And I wonder if the other price of exceptionality was that you were expected to leave your old friends behind. Mm, I mean, like, you know, you're expected to go away. You're expected to keep going through elite institutions with very few people with you. Oh, sure. But that's true for, for everyone, race, race aside. It's, you know, as you become more and more of a specialist, just to be fair on this issue, then there's just fewer people that what you know, that you know, that know anything about what you're talking about. Right. So, mm. I mean, I think that's the other thing. Right. I mean, it seems that his his circle of people, to the extent that he has friends from before the presidency, are all people that he met basically in the habitus of elite institutions. Right. So he's like, oh, yeah, I know these guys from the Harvard Law Review. Uh, he doesn't even really seem to want to talk about his undergrad years, right? It's like post-grad, he found these people, and he's found them as he's gone from success to success. Yeah, I don't even know where he went to undergrad. Where'd he go? Uh, he went first to um, Occidental, and then he finished at, um, at my great uh, alma mater, Columbia, his last two years. Okay. So he's also one of those guys, right? He's also a transfer student. So, I mean, it's like, you know... He's trying to leave people behind. Yeah, he's a hard. He's on the move. Yeah, he's a hard worker too. He probably like told him he could transfer if he did well, and so he did well to, for two years at Occidental. Well, at Occidental supposedly he was when he got radicalized. That's when he was in the anti-apartheid movement, and then he was like, "Okay, I'm gonna move, go to Columbia, that's why. And leave some of that that's, stuff behind." Yeah, see, something, that's what I meant. Something went down. Like so, they don't people don't want to hear him talking about. It. He probably just wants to leave that in the, the rearview mirror. I can't. I can't blame him. Did you see the happiest I feel like I saw him was when he was at the Nelson Mandela funeral. He was like dancing. He was like, yeah, I'm back. <laughs> he was like getting his Pan-African on. <laughs> but anyway, so do you think that Joe can do it? I mean, I think it's going to be a nail biter, man. So this, this is a good. You know, you don't believe the blowout. This is a good conversation to have. So, no, I believe. Uh, what did Trump say in 2016? The polls are real. But the what? What do you say? The something is fake. I forget what he, the numbers are fake, but the polls are real or some shit like that. I think that's that's gonna be the headline of this year. The polls are real, but the numbers are fake, player. And I think that's something that we're uh, I, we're gonna have to be prepared for it. So you think? What do you mean by the polls are real, but the numbers are fake? So there's a couple of things going on. So first of all, we're about to have a massive strike in this you know coronavirus pandemic thing, and they've been sitting on not telling people to stay home. So that's the first thing, right? They've been letting people go out and act crazy so they can spread it. And they haven't been telling people to stay home. That's like with the Trump card that, you know, Trump apparently has in his pocket. But why do they want, why does Trump want the virus to be worse? Oh, because one, as I don't think he cares about the virus. For one, I think he has a solution for himself. I think racism, you know, there's that simple answer that black and brown people are getting affected by more. Um, the market does better when places are open, whether or not the virus is happening. So he definitely cares about that. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's basically it. I don't, I don't think he cares that much about the virus per se. But you made it sound like he's been sitting on the information that people need to stay at home. Well, I think it's a, a card that he has in his pocket. I think he could easily just call it for a shutdown. It's something he hasn't had to do yet and say it's actually serious now if he wants to. States will shut back down. And then you have... Then the real game starts, right? Especially if they're going to block all mailing voting, which Republicans have already made very clear they're going to do. So who's going to vote? 
That's the question. Oh, so you think that they're you think they're going to continue the strategy or intensify the strategy that they've been pursuing for years of massive voter suppression, and that's why Trump is not worried. Basically, Trump is like, look, he's, he's, not all of you motherfuckers are going to vote. That tweet that I sent you the other day with him talking mad trash, I think that was kind of a wink at everybody that he was going to cheat very badly. He was like, I don't know what they're talking about, but uh, I've got some internal polling numbers uh, that are much better. And have Trump 2020 with a big, big win. So don't believe the fake numbers coming out of CNN and New York Times, etc. So they're they're preparing for two things. One, just to cheat. And two, this is the real question that I, I ask everybody. What happens? Just thought experiment. What happens if Trump, he starts getting the numbers in. He realizes he might lose. And he just goes on Fox. Just calls in. And they call him, they call it for Trump. Then what? Then what happens? That's a good question. I mean, who's actually supposed to count the votes? And when? Do they actually ever get counted? Or do we just kind of end it? Or what happens if they do the other crazy thing? If Fox says that Trump won and CNN says that Biden won? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm talking about. But they're going to... What if they just get ahead of the ball? And they're just like, yo, I won, player. And they throw a party and just do the whole thing and say they won. Then what? I guess you always have an advantage if you're the incumbent. Yeah. Now you got you to kick me out of my seat, right? Like, I'm already sitting down. You got to get me up. And I, I don't... But don't states count? Sure. So... In most states... So the counting is done by states, right? In most state legislatures, right? Most state governors... Have to certify the... And they're Republican. Most the state legislatures... Send their, and most state legislatures are Republican. Most state governors are Republican. Hmm. I just want to make these points very clear, right? Like, who actually ratifies these numbers at the end of the day. Mm. And so that's my chief concern, honestly. I think I think we're not going to... So your chief concern is that in some ways people are getting a bit ahead of themselves. People are thinking that, you know, this is an ordinary vote. I, I think this is going to be the most unique election in modern times. Mm. I think between the coronavirus and the kind of tricks that these boys are willing to pull to keep them in here, we know he was talking to she about helping him use propaganda and other and money to one try to end term limits right all, all together and uh oh yeah he was so excited when she got rid of his own term limits he was like that's some stuff i need to try out yeah he like so we know he has a plan like people are look this is what i keep telling people keep asking me so you think biden can win oh yeah i definitely think biden can win but that's not the question you should be asking the question is... But you're saying do, the question is, is Biden about it, about no, it? No, no. The question is, do you think Trump can lose? Mm, mm. Because aside from these big plans he's got, he's got this other problem. Major problem. Biden's already said he's going to put his ass in jail. He keeps saying it over and over. So if you were in there, if you were the most powerful person like, in the uh, world, and the guy trying to replace you is like, I'm going to throw you in jail... I mean, and I feel like those boys really want to throw him in jail. So the weird thing is that I feel like there's that one small sliver of Republicans, the only ones who seem to have defected, and they really want to throw Trump into jail. Well, because like, they I feel like the John Bolton, they, they feel uh, that he Mattis, blew the cover. They're like, man, we've been doing this, this dog whistle thing for a while. And you kind of co-opted the crazy people in the party. Like they basically realize that he's broken the party. Right. Like they're aware that. Either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party should split, probably both, at some point. Like, they, they see the issues occurring in their party now. 
Like, do you think? Do so you think the Mattises and John Kellys aren't happy? Well, I don't think they feel that they belong in the same party. Like, they definitely feel they're closer to Biden than Trump. Like, a lot closer, and that's a problem for them. But I mean, they're definitely Islamophobic, racist, all these other things. But maybe that's not as important, is what they're saying, right? Like, that's that's fine, but they still are rational people, you know? There's that. And I feel like they believe in America and, and the empire. And they're not sure that Trump really believes in it. I mean, Trump definitely doesn't believe in it. Trump believes in the Trump. Because I guess you're right. Going back to that line that you read from Nils, right? Trump believes in these, like, micro-sovereignty. Yes. And he's trying to influence. So, like, what's empire? Yeah, he's trying to influence this new concept of micro-sovereignties, right? Ultra-wealthier mm-hmm. compradors, etc. You know, people that can just move the needle themselves. They want to be able to operate with less oversight, right? They want to be able to go to the island with Epstein and not have people talk to them about yeah, it. Yeah, or trying to arrest them in New York for it. It's like, man, I wasn't even in New York. Uh, yeah, dude, I don't know where I was. <laughs> uh, but I see what you're saying. I mean, in that way, it could be a paradigm shift, right? For the party? No, I mean, in that way, it could be a paradigm shift in some ways for the... Uh, in that ways, I mean, Trump himself perhaps represents a bigger paradigm shift than many of us have given him credit for, right? Like, maybe the world in which these people like McMaster, Mattis, Kelly, even Biden are remembering is gone. Like, maybe we already live in a world full of micro-sovereignties where political power and influence is transnational, spread through networks. It's very hard to see who's on the good guy, who's a bad guy. I mean, that might be true to some extent, but also at the same time, he keeps saying China is this big bad actor and that we have to deal with them. So how can both of those things be true at the same time? I guess that's the question. But if we listen to Bolton, it seems that in private, it seems like if we believe what Bolton is saying in his book, which I don't know if we should believe, that Trump has been saying something completely different in private. Well, Trump that basically Trump is Trump has interest using China. in China. Trump's daughter had major interest in China. Jared Kushner had major interest in China, right? So I mean, yeah, China might just be the heel. You're right; it might be part of this, you know, this theater that he's playing, right? Just like in wrestling, someone's got to be the heel, and China has shown that they're willing to play the heel. That's yeah. I mean, they're playing this game back and forth, right? Somebody has to be the big bad guy. Yeah, I mean, I think these are all really interesting questions that, like, we have to play out. Um, but I think you're right. I think the closing, I think, is the great question is, can Trump lose? And so in some ways, I know we started this idea that the pod would be about, like, where is the Democratic Party going from now, from here? This is this question of, like, what type of election will we have going into the future?